0: What Henry Ford did for the automobile, the Brill Building did for pop music. Towering high on Broadway, just north of the hustle and bustle of Times Square, it housed lyricists, arrangers, recording studios, and record labels. It was a blueprint for music on an industrial scale. It was also a hub for some of the period's most prolific songwriters. At the Brill, songwriting was a nine to five like any other. It was also an art, honed by post-war America's young virtuosos. Surely die. I was the Justin Bieber of the 50s. Dan, the narrator of that clip sure pronounces automobile weird. That may seem like a cruel and cutting thing to say, but I think I'm entitled because the narrator you heard there and I, well, we share a name. Me! Me! Who am I? Well, my name is John Semley, and I'm the host of This Is Pop, the podcast. If you're just joining us, this is a podcast about This Is Pop, an eight-part docuseries by Banger Films, exploring 70 years of pop music. It's now streaming on Netflix. A lot of episodes in the series take us right into the present moment, whether through an analysis of authenticity in country music, or the use of autotune, or the power of protest songs and the enduring appeal of music festivals. But the episode The Brill Building in Four Songs goes back further, arguably as far back as the dawn of pop music itself. In this episode, we'll learn a bit more about the building, or really buildings, in New York City where so many of the pop hits of the 50s and 60s were written, recorded, and produced. And we'll chat with one of the living legends who helped give musical shape to the experiences of a whole new post-World War II demographic who have been key to the history of pop music. I'm speaking, of course, of teenagers. So as the teenagers said back then, let's burn rubber, daddy-o. As a writer, our first guest had early hits, writing for the top-charting pop sensation Connie Francis As a singer, his debut single, The Diary, was inspired by his relationship with Francis. On later hit singles like Oh Carol and Calendar Girl, he gave a voice to the romantic angst of a generation of teenagers, becoming an early teen pop sensation himself. In a career spanning over 60 years, Neil has written or co-written more than 500 songs, and I'm pleased to welcome the legendary American singer, pianist, composer, producer, and all-around nice guy, Neil Sadaka, to this episode. Neil, how are you today?
1: Thank you. I'm fine. Uh, you roll back. You rolled five hundred songs. It took uh, twenty six years to write them. <laughs>
0: Still, nothing to sneeze at. Um, now, Neil, I, I, I want to start by talking about a line in the uh, episode on the Brill Building we filmed. You described yourself as the Justin Bieber of your generation. Uh, Tell me a bit about that.
1: Did I say that? You said that. I wish I was as good looking as Justin Bieber was. Oh, he's all covered in tattoos. Uh, He looks like a
0: a, a restroom stall these days.
1: (laughs) Very talented. Um, I uh, was the boy next door. I was the one that uh, the mothers loved. Uh, I was a goody two-shoes. I was not the, uh, the pin-up uh, uh, guy who, uh, who the girl put on her, uh, her wall. Uh, you know, I was uh, much more uh, um, accessible. You know, I, I, people said that I looked like someone I went to, they went to school with or their favorite cousin. Uh, I was more reachable, more touchable.
0: Now, for some people who might not have heard of it or who may have just heard of it through this documentary, mm-hmm. Neil, can you tell us a bit about what, what the Brill Building was? And I guess the thing that I'm curious about is, you know, was it just a place, was it just a building, or was it more of an idea or an approach to music?
1: It was a build. Or it was a building, 1650 Broadway. Uh, my friend who I went to Lincoln High School with, Mort Schumann, uh, suggested I go to 1650 Broadway. Because up until then, uh, 1619 Broadway were the older songwriters, you know, the evergreen standard songwriters. And uh, these were new publishing firms at 1650 who were catering to younger uh, songwriters. And uh, Howie and I walked into Alden Music in 1958. And uh, Don Kirshner and Al Nevins... Uh, opened the door and they said, please, we're in a meeting, come back after lunch. And I think the meeting was about how they were going to pay the rent on this uh, office, because they had just opened up and they had really uh, no material yet. But Howie and I were the first to be signed to Alden Music, Al Nevins and Don Kirshner. And then I brought subsequently uh, Carol King, up to Alden, who I was dating. And uh, from there it went to Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and uh, uh, Jeff Barry and uh, 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 Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann. And uh, uh, they built up a wonderful roster of writers. And we would go in from uh, approximately 10 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon, five days a week, in a small room with a desk and a piano, and uh, that was a great way to learn our craft. You know, uh, the more you do it, the better you become at it. Some days you came up with nothing, maybe a piece of a song, and the next day uh, you can uh, uh, elaborate on that and get more more of a more of a tune or more lyrics. Uh, it was um, it was a good uh, training ground, and at the end of the day, we were all going to Al Nevin's big office with a red piano, and uh, the best song won out. We all played our song for the day, and um, either Shirelles were coming up for a record, or the Righteous Brothers, or the Chiffons, and... Um, Al Nevins and Don Kirshner would pick their favorite song from all of the writers that day. And uh, be, within weeks, it was on the radio, and you knew whether you had a hit or not.
0: Now, the way you describe it, it sounds almost a little cutthroat. Was was there a sense of collaboration or team spirit, or was it uh, uh, every man for himself?
1: It was a very good. Uh, a very uh, I, I would say uh, it inspired us to write better. It was good competition. You know, we all wanted to top each other. And the walls were thin in those days, so a lot of the songs sounded alike. But I, I think that, um, you know, when you're up against others, it, it, uh, you raise the bar, you reinvent Neil Sedaka, you, uh, you listen to, uh, you know, creative people bounce off each other. And that's what the case was.
0: Now, Neil, I know that you were one of the earliest artists to write and perform their own songs. You know, this was before the Beatles and before Bob Dylan. Did you see something that maybe uh, other songwriters didn't see in this respect?
1: Well, the first year or so, uh, we had uh, submitted songs and they were recorded by others. And I kept hocking as we say in our language, hacking a china to uh, Al Nevins, saying, why don't you record me? And finally, after a couple of years, uh, he set up an audition with RCA Victor because he had a group called The Three Sons. They had a hit called Twilight Time, an instrumental on RCA Victor. And he knew Steve Scholes, the head of A&R. He set up a... an an audition for me, and I went in and played the diary for Steve Scholes and he liked me enough to sign me to a recording contract singing my own songs.
0: You make more money that way, as I understand it.
1: Not only that, but when the radio plays, they say that was the diary by Neil Sedaka, uh, which is unfortunate. I think uh, there's a lot of unsung heroes here. They never mentioned Howard Greenfield. They never mentioned... Um, many of the times they would play a group like uh, the... Uh, uh, let's say... Uh, the Coasters. That was Yakety Yak by The Coasters, but they would never mention the lead singer. Or the writers of the song.
0: Now, do you think that a place like the Brill Building, you know, almost this industrial songwriting hub, can something like that exist today, or was it a product of its time and of its place?
1: Well, there was the Chicago sound, the L.A. sound, the Detroit Motown sound. There were similar uh, uh, young uh, uh, places like that who catered to young writers and uh rock and roll at the beginning of uh, of that era and uh i think today uh you know it's controlled by uh, many of the singers they have their own uh, group of songwriters and producers so uh, they keep it in the family
0: now you went on to have quite an illustrious career after your time at the brill how did your work at the brill impact how you approach pop music in the years that followed
1: well, uh, my mentors and my teachers were Richard Rodgers, George Gershwin, uh, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, Johnny Mercer. These were the people who I grew up with and who inspired me pre-rock and roll. So when Howie and I started writing in uh, October the 11th, I remembered exactly, October the 11th, 1952, we, uh, we did not write rock and roll, but rock and roll really didn't exist except for the, uh, uh, the black artists. Uh, and, um, we actually were very fortunate at the beginning. Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler at Atlantic took many of our songs and recorded it with the Cookies, the Cardinals, the Clovers, Laverne Baker, Clyde McVadder. Um, so, um, it it, it it evolved, it evolved. And uh, I was inspired by listening to other artists. Actually, I wrote the tune first. And the way I wrote tunes was I, I would listen to a vocalist on the radio and say, gee, I, I could write a tune to suit that voice. Um, it's a strange way... Of Of uh, let's see if I can explain it. It's a strange way of writing. Uh, it was the voice, the vocal quality that inspired me to write uh, an original tune. Then, after that, I would give the tune to Howie, and he would put the lyrics to it. But actually, I was inspired by listening to singers. That was the catalyst.
0: Now, When we talk about the sort of end of the Brill Building, what what things do you think sort of spelled the end of the Brill Building and this whole approach to songwriting, you know, around the time of, I I suppose, the mid-1960s?
1: I think it's when Olden Music sold to Screen Gems. Uh, Don Kirshner became vice president of Screen Gems Music. Al Nevins got a couple of million dollars and quit the business. And uh, 1650 was finished. We went to an office uh, in uh, on Madison Avenue in the '60s, and uh, it was uh, not quite as exciting. It it wasn't um, it didn't have that spontaneous excitement that 1650 had.
0: Do you think that the the British invasion played a role in this idea of musicians, you know, playing their own instruments, writing their own songs? Was it kind of a uh, a new way of making music that, that threatened the Brill a bit?
1: Well, uh, yes. Of course, the Beatles and Rolling Stones and the English influx changed the uh, face of music, the sound of music. Um, it was, um, I think, uh, you know, it was very unusual for English groups to have hits in America. That was a unique uh, Thing to begin with, and um, it, it it the solo uh, singer, American solo male singer, disappeared. Uh, all of the uh, Frankie Avalons and myself and Bobby Rydell's, we disappeared. Uh, we were uh, covered up by the uh, the new English uh, sounds,
0: or the folkies, I suppose.
1: And the folks' songs, of course. And I knew in 63 that I still had hits in me. And um, it wasn't until uh, the singer-songwriter came in, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, Cat Stevens, Joni Mitchell, my friend Carol King, uh, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, the advent of the singer songwriter that i uh, was at the right place at the right time i still had a lot of hits in me and uh i came up with the, the idea of going to england i figured if the beatles came to new york i would go to london because the english were very faithful to the american uh, original rock and roll singer songwriters so I went to England and played small 200 seat clubs and then uh, discovered uh, uh, Elton John was a friend and a fan. And he, uh, we went to a Bee Gees concert and we first met backstage in London. And he said, I understand your recording with the 10 CCs. You've had several chart records here in America, but here in England, but nothing in America. He said, I'm starting a record company, Rocket Records. And he signed me to uh, the label. And he uh, took some of the songs I recorded in London with the 10 CCs, and then some songs I recorded right here at Clovis Studios in Santa Monica Boulevard uh, with uh, Robert Appear as producer. And he put it together, and he called it Sadaka's Back. It was an LP that had uh, some English uh, recordings and some American recordings. And lo and behold, it brought me back, thanks to Elton and his belief in me.
0: Well, speaking of the Bee Gees, I know that you uh, had quite a revival in the early 70s in Australia. What do you think the people in Australia uh, were hearing in Neil Sadaka that maybe the people in America weren't?
1: Uh, In the uh, 60s, I had no work in America, Uh, so um, I never did the rock and roll tours, the bus tours. I always wanted to do what uh, Bobby Darin did, Connie Francis, the uh, adult supper clubs. And in England, there was something called the League's Clubs, which were adult uh, uh, clubs where you could have dinner and watch a show. And, um, I started, uh, spending weeks and months in Australia. It was one of the few places that, uh, that I had an opportunity to perform and, uh, they, uh, liked my new songs and they were open to listening to new things and, um, I think they—they're a marvelous audience. They're very, very, uh, very attentive, very respectful, uh, appreciative audience. And uh, I, I had a few hits in Australia, and then um, uh, that was in the late '60s. Yes.
0: Now, Neil, I'm wondering: Do you keep up with the latest uh, technology on the internet much? And I, I ask because—are uh, you familiar with TikTok at all?
1: No. I just discovered social media. I do a show uh, where I do a mini concert three or four times a week that's on Facebook and Instagram and and um, uh, all of the social media. I do three songs. It's about a 15-minute show where I talk about writing the songs and sing at the piano here in L.A., and it's been a, a very big success. I get 10, 20,000 uh, comments and wonderful comments from all over the world. So uh, at this stage of the game, I am playing to people who really are hearing Neil Sedaka for the first time. I do these mini concerts, and uh, if I ever get back on the stage, I think uh, my audience will be even bigger.
0: It's interesting, there's a cohort of teens on the internet who sing Neil Sadaka songs, you know, O'Carroll oh, and Calendar Girl, and, you know, these are teenagers, yeah. you're, you're sp- still speaking to teenagers 50, 60, almost 70 years later. How does that make you feel?
1: Uh, great. I even heard a four-year-old sing, I love, I love, I love my dinosaur pet. I wrote a uh, children's book with a CD where I changed the words for children. And then I've heard young uh, uh, teenage kids singing uh, the original uh, uh the Girl and Breaking up is hard to do and little devil. it's uh, it's marvelous. Uh, these songs were written, as you said, fifty, sixty years ago, and to hear young people sing them, it uh, shows that they're timeless. It shows that they're timeless, and it shows that they' they weren't bubblegum songs. You know, they were uh, inspired by your uh, Irving Berlin and Richard Rogers and all of the all of the great writers.
0: You've got your own great American songbook on your hands.
1: Well, it wasn't easy. It may you know it sounds easy, but once you write it on the on the piano, then you got to go into the studio, hope that the musicians can uh, uh, play what you wrote uh, in the in the enthusiasm and the energy that you gave in the writing. And uh, sometimes you write a mediocre song on the piano and it comes alive in the studio and vice versa. Sometimes you write a great song on the piano and you go into the studio and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, take life. It, it depends on the producer. It depends on, on the musicians. It's uh it's a uh, it's a teamwork.
0: Well, yeah, I, I don't think it sounds easy at all. That's the thing I like about the Brill Building is uh, people tend to think of songwriting as if it's, you know, an act of inspiration or something, or your muse speaks to you and then, poof, a song appears. But you guys were punching in and punching out. You know, this was a lunch pail job, nine to five. It doesn't sound easy to me at all.
1: Yes, it was uh, hours and hours at the piano. You know, you have to chop yourself. You have to reinvent Neil Sedaka. If you write the same kind of song over and over, uh, it's boring and the uh, you lose the audience. I think the reason I've been around so long is that I've always uh, uh, raised the bar and reinvented Neil Sedaka. Uh, Laughter in the Rain was completely different than Calendar Girl, and uh, Solitaire was completely different than the The Diary. You have to develop and grow.
0: Now, Neil, do you see any sort of uh, remnants or holdovers of the Brill Building in modern pop music? Do you see any uh, evidence of its legacy these days?
1: As far as what?
0: Well, as far as the way that songs are written, I mean, you know, we as people talk about the you know the Swedish songwriters and how it's kind of similar to the Brill Building. Uh, do, do you see evidence of the sounds of the approach to making music, or is this kind of? Uh, like I said earlier, a product of its time and place.
1: You know, um, I'm sorry to say that today's music doesn't, doesn't move me. Uh, it's for dancing. It's for uh, production. Uh, uh, the language, uh, you, the words are, are not understandable. And if they are, they're, they're filthy. And uh, it's a street uh, culture. It's a street culture. I, I just don't think that they'll uh, they last like my songs or the Brill Building songs lasted. They just don't have melody, and they uh, they're uh, really just uh, you know uh, mostly for the disco, for the ba- for the for the dancing, and uh, they're not. Uh, they're not songs, they're feels. Uh, there are very few good, there are some good ones, certainly, but not many, not many. And these people who are stars today are stars for 10 minutes. Well, uh, I don't think many of them will last.
0: Now, Neil, just one more question. Uh, the name of our show is "This Is Pop," so I want to put the question to you: What is pop, or what is pop music to you?
1: A culture of the time. Uh, whatever is happening musically, uh, you know, it 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 reflects the uh, the the language, the uh, uh, what people, how people dress how people uh, uh, express themselves. Uh, it's the culture of the time. And, uh, you know, I, I i grew up with real singers. I grew up with uh, with Sinatra and Tony Bennett and Victor Moan and Steve Lawrence and Rosemary Clooney and Patti Page. These were singers. Today, uh the voice is secondary, uh, the melodies are <laughs> sometimes no melodies, the, the lyrics are easily forgotten. Uh, I do give credit to these uh, rappers because I don't know, uh, these, these poems go on and on, how they remember the, the, the words is incredible how they can remember it. And uh, that that I do give credit to. But uh, I'm firstly a musician. And if it doesn't have a melody and a lyric, then uh, it uh, doesn't move me.
0: Well, well put, Neil. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day in sunny Los Angeles.
1: Thank you. And you stay well.
0: Okay, Neil, take care. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. I'm here now, joined by series producer Amanda Burt and director Chelsea McMullen, who will be sharing their thoughts and their stories about the episode. Hello to you both.
2: Hi, John. Hi, John. Hi,
0: Chelsea. So, I want to talk first. We spoke with Neil Sadaka. Neil, when we talked about the Brill Building, we talked about 1650, 1619, 1697, Uh, this kind of series or triangle of buildings. Does one of you kind of want to help explain which one of those is the Brill Building? Are they all the Brill Building? Is the Brill Building uh, a loose concept under which these three addresses are unified? What's going on?
2: You know what, I would say D, all of the above, but uh, really the That's Brill a cop Building, out. Hey, well, <laughs> so the longer answer is um, the Brill Building is at 1619 Broadway in New York City and that's just north of Times Square. So it's a beautiful 11 story building that was the center of our universe when we were doing this episode. And when you watch it, uh, well, we have some stories about that building in particular, but you'll actually see it in the episode. The other two addresses that Neil was talking about were 1650 Broadway, which is literally a block up and across the street and 1697, which is another block and a half up and across the street again. And those were just the, what you I guess what you'd call the expansion of the Braille building. So whenever you talk about the Braille building sound, which was referring to a certain kind of pop music of its time, or certain kind of melodies or song structure that came out of these writing duos that were part of that sound, they might not have been working at the original place, 1619, they might have been just up at the other newer building, or up at the Other buildings, 1697 again. So just as a catch-all phrase, that's known as the Brill Building Sound, the music that emerged from those three locations. But if you needed to make a T-shirt of the Brill Building, it would actually look like this one very specific address, which I can't remember. I think it's at 49th and Broadway in uh,
0: New York City. Well, let's talk about the building itself these days, because I think we were all there at different points. Uh, and I, I don't know what, what do you guys, mean? what's going on at the Bro building these days? You know, <laughs> you don't necessarily get this sense when you walk up to it, that this is this hallowed place in the history of American culture. At least that was my impression
3: yeah it's quite sad actually i think it's like half of it's a we work which that's a whole other story right
0: um don't say anything the defamatory other, about we work
3: yeah <laughs> i'm scared to talk too much about we work but uh yeah half of it's a WeWork, work which i mean you know also i think there's like a certain irony in, in that of like you know the sort of approach to songwriting of the Brill, and, you know, what are sort of like contemporary, and I think you can sort of draw these connections to like a contemporary, like idea of song songwriting and kind of like how we work as this like open workspace um, right. gig economy kind of <laughs> approach to, uh, you know, how we all move creatively through the world. So yeah, I was like, it's actually a little bit depressing. And I kind of wanted to include it in the episode, but again, <laughs> legally, <laughs> Uh, it was maybe (laughs) uh, too hot to touch, if you will. Um, But yeah, and then we got a tour of the Brill. The rest of it is sort of like, I think they're trying to rent it out, um, but it hasn't happened. So it's like, it's really just gutted um, on the inside. They had kept the the beautiful elevators and the lobby. And I think the outside, Amanda, correct me if I'm wrong, the outside is like a historic site. So that is kept uh, like, um intact but the inside is nothing of what it uh, of it once what what it once was. Yeah, there was is pretty
2: interesting. So you'll notice when you see the episode if you haven't just watched it and come to this podcast to learn more, um, that we actually never made it inside when we were shooting. And there's lots of stories that I I think Chelsea can tell you about mm-hmm. that. But when we were in for the tour, because we thought we'd be in there, um, there was the You know, those signs near the elevator tell you what floor to go to for what that had just been emptied out, except for one business that is still in the Brill Building, which is Broadway Video, Lauren Michaels, Uh, for fans of Saturday Night Live, you know that that's where um, all their goods come out of. So he has had a building or an office there forever. Paul Simon's studio and offices were there. Many New York denizens had their offices there, even if they weren't the superstar um, songwriters because it was this like magical place. And now it's, uh, you know what, I actually was looking it up while Neil was talking. I don't, I think the WeWork failed. No surprise. <laughs> the real building. So they had torn out all the, apparently according to the guy that gave us a tour, which was um, a man the day before he was retiring, sad about what was happening to the Brill Building where he had worked for maybe 30 plus years. Uh, gave us a tour and was telling us all sorts of stories. Sidney Poitier worked washing dishes to make money when he first came to New York, where people would sleep because they just wanted to be close to greatness, where the pay phones were that you could call up to different publishers if you couldn't afford to have an office there. All of that was ripped out um, for this, you know, New York City real estate, which is just part of the charm and the Sadness of you know these giant places that change all the time. So you did see some touchstones of the magic that we hear about the Brill, but a lot of it had just disappeared in the uh, new reality of that place. You're right
0: about if this is too PG thirteen, we can cut it. But I was there for like a location scout meeting thing at one point, and went to Broadway Video and used the men's room, and that was my uh, brush with great flush with greatness uh, as a fan of (laughs) the Kids in the Hall. Yeah. And I mean, so tell us a bit about the struggles, the challenges in making the episode, because I I think there was a sense of wanting to communicate its greatness, but that greatness not necessarily being preserved. And, you know, what were some of the on the ground hassles of trying to get in there and, and, and make a film about this space?
3: Uh yeah, it was uh I, I'm not going to lie. This was a this was a tough episode <laughs> to make uh on a lot of levels, but um just to zoom in on one aspect of it, which is literally filming in the Brill. Um yeah, I think we had gotten permission to shoot there um and so we were in new york with andy kim ready to go and have him sort of you know walk through the building and like go back like you know mem- like go through memory lane and tell us all these anecdotes of things that happened in different places and stuff and uh it was going to be great and then the the day the like the night before we were supposed to shoot there and <laughs> they they pulled it and they and said we couldn't uh we couldn't shoot uh, in the building which was you know at the time sort of like incredibly frustrating obviously you you plan something and you're all there and you're like okay um, but in the end um, I I don't know I think it was sort of a blessing in disguise like to be honest it's all gutted in there and it's not that visually interesting and I think um, sort of it works almost better as a symbol of like Andy Kim walking around and just not being able to get in. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I think that's kind of uh, in the end sort of felt truer to what the experience of making the, this um, film is, you know, there's not a lot of archival of the Brill Um, there's not, um, you know, a lot of the musicians, um, some are still surviving, but a lot have died. And so you're sort of looking at this past and you, I don't, I really honestly believe you can't talk about pop music without talking about the Brill. I think it's like, there's an argument to be made that it is the birth of pop music, um, but uh like nobody knows about it <laughs> like i think you know about the individual singers and and songwriters potentially like of course Carole King um and you know about you know Dion Warwick and uh, the you know the Shangri-Las the Shirelles but you don't I, I, and, I, and i and you know i'm speaking for myself too you don't understand that this was all part of the same movement um, and how they all influenced each other um uh, and and sort of, uh, yeah, what a special time this was in songwriting history and in pop music history.
0: When I was a kid, there would always be these late-night infomercials for a CD compilation called Malt Shop Memories, uh, and that was all, like, brill-building music I recognize now, you know? And it's almost like there was this weird little window when rock and roll had been invented, but we didn't quite have the British invasion or the sort of ascent of rock and roll as a as a dominant form, where these people really dominated. And Chelsea, I think you're right; it totally just gets a, a, eclipsed by things that came either before or after it. But you know, to talk a bit about the after. I talked about this a bit with Neil, and you know he he gets very granular about like well the end of the Brill Building was uh, Don Kirshner uh, signing a contract and this and that. But you know when we kind of zoom out and we look at what was happening in pop culture and what was happening in music, what do you think were these sort of uh, the the threats that sort of changed attitudes and changed songwriting and and sort of sealed the fate of the Brill Building?
3: Um, you want to take that, Amanda? I, I can pop in.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because he he mentioned um, Screen Gems, but so I think the biggest thing that people would know out of Screen Gems is the cartoon, The Archies, um, which we do. We explore that a little bit at the end of the episode when we're uh, with Andy Kim and there's a choir singing Sugar Sugar, which even if you don't know The Archies, you don't know the Brill you do know the song Sugar Sugar. It has somehow infiltrated your life since the age of two, no matter how old you are, right? Um, so Screen Gems was the company that put together the Archies and had put together the Monkees. And there are some good stories when we were doing research on this episode. Um, Don Kirshner was saying, you know, they, he was having all these issues with the actual band, the Archies, because they got so big. They've been put together for that television show shortly after... Uh, his move from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, And that was meant to be like a Beatles parody or a Beatles homage. And then the Monkees got really popular. And then they were a quote unquote real band and they wanted to have a say in their art. And he was like, nah. So that's why the Archies were created because cartoon characters don't talk back (laughs) to you. But of course you have to have, (laughs) the kind of music that resonates with people and has the melody and has the connection that still was lingering from a lot of the writers of the Brill Building, even if their time was over, even if people were listening more to the Beatles and listening more to singer songwriters like Bob Dylan. So that's why we ended up talking to Andy Kim because he was tasked with writing the big hit for the Archies, even after it was seen that the Brill Building writers and that kind of pop music wasn't necessary. It appeared years later in another form because it was still really connected to by the audiences that uh, wanted to hear it. So, yeah, I would say it was the move of the entertainment and industry to the West Coast. So, lots of people moving to LA, record companies moving to LA, even Motown moved to Los Angeles just to be um, in this burgeoning scene. And then, yeah, as Neil was getting into, the advent of folk music and singer-songwriters as well as the Beatles, it just was a really different time in terms of what is music, what is pop music, and how do we connect to what's being sung to us and told to us, what messages are coming across. And so the message of a new style of person, which was the teenager and the explorations that can happen and the fun nights and the exciting days, and you're not forced to work in a factory. You have all this leisure time with all your new friends. Well, that's what was happening with the Brill Building pop. But shortly after that, there's assassinations. JFK was assassinated in 1963. There's the advent of the Vietnam War that's happening. There's rumblings in the civil rights movement. So things just changed, and music reflected that, and the Brill Building wasn't positioned to reflect Um, those kind of social changes because the social changes were coming fast and furious.
0: Do you think Amanda with all those changes that you mentioned, you know, by the time we get to the Archies or, you know, even the monkeys, which as you mentioned, were sort of cooked up by Alden publishing as a, you know, British invasion parody band uh, sort of as a forum for a lot of the songwriters from the Brill building. But do you think that maybe by the mid to late sixties, there was almost a desire or nostalgia for these kind of, you know, this malt shop memories era that groups like the, the Archie's were tapping into.
2: I think so. You know, it's, um, you know, it's interesting being, I won't say we're in the middle of COVID. We're at the end of COVID. We're in the beginning of the end of COVID. So even when there's heavy things happening around you and the world is changing at a certain point, you don't always want to feel the heaviness right? You want to feel joy and happiness. You want to have a dance party and you still want to feel the human emotions that every generation and every age always wants to hear, especially the young when you're feeling things for the very first time. So, you know, if you're fed a steady diet of heavy revolutionary folk music, really singing about the wars that are going on, that does become tiring. And I think, you know, now, they're saying that what people are watching on tv or on streaming or listening to on podcasts just like right now uh, people want lighter fare so they can actually escape and music is one of the most magical ways you can do that so i think there's always been an opportunity to look for that poppier sound and also as neil was saying you know if you're a trained songwriter um, and you can write with beautiful, strong melodies that are based in music theory, there's something universal because you're picking out from people before you, from people before them, and this whole continuum of music that will appeal to people other than just in that time.
0: Right. Now, let's let's look a bit at more at the episode and how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, now, this episode in particular, it pieces together the the story of the Brill Building in a variety of mediums or media. Uh, You know, we have the simulations with the dolls. Uh, We have the music video sandwiched in there. Now, uh, Chelsea, can you just kind of tell me about how you approach this aesthetically and where this idea came from to sort of, you know, almost it feels like make four documentaries within this documentary?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, so when Amanda and I were uh, sort of brainstorming around how to make this episode, um we you know to be honest like the Brill building is in some ways its own series which you know be cool if it gets made but again i think it would be so hard just based on the just based on the roadblocks i experienced um but the biggest challenges to the episode was that there's not a lot of archival there's not a lot of people involved in the brill that are still alive um and uh, how do you represent this place? You know, we couldn't, <laughs> like, even if we did get access to the build real building, which we wanted to, there was not much there, you know, there's just not much to shoot. Um, so we kind of really had to think outside the box. And then the other thing is like, how do you capture this movement in music in w- one episode? And the answer to that is you don't. <laughs> you don't try to do that. The answer to that is you focus in. Um, uh, and, um, the, our idea that we came up with sort of as like a creative, um, way to overcome these challenges was to focus in on four songs at the Brill that were very iconic. And then hopefully through the telling of the story of how these songs were made, you would understand, um, Uh, more broadly about how the Brill worked. So that was the approach we took to the episode. And then um, again, the challenge was like, okay, how do you visualize um, these songs and and the building? And because we were so limited in terms of what we had to shoot, uh, my idea was to essentially make four separate entities, make four short films, or short four short documentaries about the brill and approach each one with its own distinct um aesthetic approach and uh and to make it self-contained so i then um uh worked with a very talented writer <laughs> and uh and uh, we just set about to sort of really establish what the story is. So we wanted four songs that were iconic, but also had a very interesting story in terms of how they were made. And then and then I tried to think through um, how to represent this in an interesting way. So in one, we use models um, to, to sort of make these recreations of the Brill and so we have all of the people involved in the scenes um, as like model figurines and we actually built a scale model of the Brill in another one, sort of a music video I like to consider it sort of a film uh, a filmic version of uh, Leader of the Pack um, so we sort of recreated uh, a, a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek kitschy uh, version um, of leader of the pack. Um, so yeah, we just, and then, you know, in, in another one, we, um, we had, uh, choir, 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 uh, uh record, uh, sugar, sugar in all of its joy and pleasure. So having a choir sing a Brill Building song is like the most joyful thing you can possibly imagine. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of the, the approach to, to making this episode uh, in a way that was as dynamic as possible, um, with sort of limited, um, you know, uh, visual resources.
0: What about selecting the songs? I mean, with all the music that came out of there, what was the sort of process for picking the four songs that ended up on film?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that it was about, um, one, there was an interesting story into how it was made. There was interesting people associated with that song that were still alive. Um, (laughs) And uh, there was, uh, yeah, there was an opportunity like to represent, you know, I could see a way to represent it in an interesting uh, dynamic way and um, that it said something larger about the Brill or represented a different time in the Brill uh brills history so we didn't want sort of songs overlapping or from the same groups or from the same groups of writers. We wanted really distinct people um that worked within the worked within the brill um to better represent the sort of vastness of it.
0: And I don't know if this is too inside baseball, but uh I happen to know that there was a fifth song. What happened with that?
3: There there was a fifth song. Um, the elusive
0: fifth song which...
3: <laughs> which you know um i did i did love uh uh you know uh it was <laughs> you've uh I, i'm on my heels Oh, it's, it was <laughs> you've, you've lost, lost that, that loving, loving feeling.
0: feeling by the righteous brothers yeah, yeah
3: yeah 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 you've lost that feeling by the 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 righteous brothers and which is just such a beautiful and iconic song and i kind of had this idea that it would be um Barry Mann and Cynthia
0: Cynthia Wild.
3: Sorry, um, Cynthia Wild. Barry Mann and Cynthia Wild. Like I kind of wanted to represent them as a writing couple. Um, and, uh, I kind of had this idea even of doing maybe these like black and white film recreations of them, like writing together at the Brill and like smoking and being at the piano. And, uh, yeah, it was going to be, uh, I, I thought that there was a lot of potential and that, that I think is like, um, the most played song on the radio of all time or something. Yeah, it's,
0: it's, I think (laughs) Um, Happy Birthday is the only song that has- i forget what the metric is that has been played more like white christmas happy birthday and you've lost that loving feeling like the three most popular american songs of all time
3: yeah and i mean that's the thing with um with uh brill building songs is they really feel like even though they aren't necessarily overtly political they really hit you in a way um like you know they they really like I, i always find that like when i hear the song like uh, even like um will you still love me tomorrow which is a song we also cover in the in the episode um and they they're just heartbreaking They're stabs in the heart that are you know they're tricky because <laughs> they lull you with that melody and then you like are crying by the end and i actually think that's kind of the power of the brilliant and, and you've lost out loving feeling really does that for me um but yeah the the sort of tragedy about the that is that um at first uh uh barry and cynthia were interested but um as we were sort of making the episodes and cynthia uh, uh sort of um has been ill for a while and hasn't been doing well and they decided that she just wasn't well enough to to do um the yeah to to do an interview and that was really kind of important um for being able to represent that song so yeah, that was really too bad. But then at the same time, I think it was a blessing in disguise because I already feel like there was so much in those <laughs> four songs that like trying to think about how, we'd cut down, how we would have cut it down to include a fifth. It's like I, I I feel like at the time I was really disappointed, but in the end I think that was actually like saved me a headache and probably having to cut a song. From,
0: you've, you've lost that loving feeling it could be like a feature doc on just that song and it's, you know, a, a montage Absolutely. of its uses. But, you know, you mentioned Cynthia getting kind of ill and that's a very sad story. But the, the other thing that I like about this uh, this episode is that, yeah, we talk to a lot of older people and it's kind of nice to like get their stories and their reflections for a period in music and a sort of style of songwriting that, as you said, has, you know, doesn't really get its due. Um, so that was sweet. It was sweet to see old Neil Sadaka on the boardwalk in his element, you know?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think like, I mean, as a society, I think we're kind of ageist. And, you know, like, they're not young, hot things anymore. And everyone just cares about, like, you know, wanting to talk about Billie Eilish and, and, uh, you know, and Justin Bieber. But like, these were those people. And they have a really rich and interesting history. And they were those people before those, <laughs> those people are those people. Uh, they were the first. And so I think, but we're making a show like This Is Pop um, to not, uh, you know, pay tribute uh, to the history of pop music and to pay tribute to these people that pretty much invented it feels wrong. And I'm so glad we did this episode. Yeah.
2: Yeah, me too. We also, we, we don't, we haven't mentioned it
3: yet, but we, we
2: spoke to Mike Stoller of the very famous songwriting duo, uh, Lieber and Stoller, whose first mega hit was Hound Dog which is a very long time ago. Um, but we went to his insanely baller house so baller. in LA, looking over all of Los Angeles, like looking over when you're in the hills, over rappers' houses. Like rappers had okay houses, but
3: his was higher and had a better view. Like the like, view. That's how baller is. Yeah, like I've never seen a view like that in an actual <laughs> yes. house.
2: No, because not even on MTV Crips. Like it's better than Crips. Better than Crips. So... And the uh he and his wife uh Corky Hale, who I loved, <laughs> who was there that day, had a painting of Obama on the outside of their house just to you know put it out there that they're very amazing progressive people and this was in the Trump era. And so. Amanda the
3: toilet Can paper.
2: Tell the story. I don't remember the story of the toilet
3: paper. Oh, did you not see it? Oh, so I went to the bathroom I in their house so. and the toilet paper had Trump's face. Oh, on how, it. Crude. Each. Each. how crude. How <laughs> crude
0: yeah, It sounds like you can make like a get out sequel at, uh, Mike, Mike Stoller's house.
2: <laughs> no, he was amazing. It, I mean, every room was filled with every award, him with every president, them just being the most gentle, smartest, most sophisticated people, but talking to him and he, we we're talking to him about, um, it was on his label that, uh, the Shangri-Las were discovered, and so we're talking t- to them about um, uh, about their song. But just to get his perspective, like, I've never seen anything like that. And, you know, with the infomercial, the Malt memories, but I remember, like, late night, yeah, filler TV talking about Brill building type um Stories, but it would just, you would never actually hear from the people. It was just, you'd maybe hear the song. And the thing that's kind of amazing about this episode is so many people didn't know any of the stories associated with it. But I would say that the songs that we used and the songs that are threaded throughout, people know those songs because that's Mm -hmm. what's on movie soundtracks because of the emotive power that they have. So I remember, you know, when I was young, a film called Stand By Me came out and that was all basically Brill Building songs. I think maybe before that or around the same time, The Big Chill came out. I didn't see it for years, but I heard the soundtrack for many, many, many years before I actually saw the movie. And that was all Brill Building. So it's that, as Chelsea's saying, like the strings and that beautiful orchestration just hits you right in the gut. And that's why I felt it was important to do this episode, not only because as Chelsea says, you can't talk about pop music without the Brill Building, but this is the link to another generation of music. You know, a lot of these teenagers that were writing these songs had were first-generation immigrants where their parents were listening to classical music only, Eastern European classical music at home. So they grew up on a steady diet of violin. Maybe they were forced to play it from a young age, and they transferred that into these swelling, string orchestrations on these songs that are about meeting somebody on the Coney Island boardwalk right and so that uh pastiche and that collage of influences plus people that would have taken piano lessons had a strict regime and put that hard work ethic into these songs it's not about the gram it's not about your stylist it's not about your reach and dropping to be number 1 on Spotify it's about I think as Stephen Van Zandt said in the episode, you know, it's a little like three minute uh, orchestra about teenage angst. It's just there are these perfect moments and they're timeless. So even if they're not speaking to something from 2021, human beings haven't changed. So those feelings have always been
0: around. I, I think one of the other things that hasn't changed, too, is this sort of. You know, you mentioned the sort of the the teenage memories that this conjures, you know, uh, poodle skirts and malted shakes and people at Teen Makeout Cove and all that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you have these kind of very clear memories that have been circulated through movies and television and pop culture, but you don't necessarily think about the fact that these songs are being written by like, you know, middle-aged men or people in their 20s with their shirt sleeves rolled up, chain-smoking cigarettes for eight hours a day. Uh, And I think that this idea that, You know, in in a lot of respects, these days pop music is still a kind of uh, an industrial apparatus, and that's not necessarily a criticism, right? Uh, I'm I'm wondering if there's anything we can connect that to in the series that we see, where there's kind of the front face of the pop song and what's going on behind the scenes are almost night and day.
2: Yeah, I would say um, there's something very similar. We have an episode called the Stockholm Syndrome, which is about the Juggernaut, which is the Swedish music producer, either in Stockholm or LA, and this group of producers centered around Max Martin that have made pop music what it is um, for the last 25 years. So, you know, we look at how that beginning of that was when Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys did their very first albums in Stockholm with this very small group of producers, normal guys with good ideas, um, And then that sound broke so huge in North America that everyone wanted to replicate. How? To, where did that come from? How do we get that sound? And that was by using the same group of Swedish super producers. So that group has expanded. There's other names like Shellback is one of them, or um, Ludwig Göransson are all connected and are, are all from that, those generations down from Max Martin. Max Martin came from a guy uh, named Dennis Pop, who when we were talking to all these different Swedish producers to be a part of that episode, only wanted to do it if we would talk about Dennis Popp. They've done enough press, they have millions of dollars, they do not need to talk to anyone, but because we were gonna talk about that lineage and about that small community of people sharing ideas in these small rooms, to actually create these melodies that would talk to people's hearts, they said, Well, Dennis Pop was the man, and yeah, they'll be a part of it. So there, I found there to be a lot of similarities with the way, with the research and the way that people talked about the Brill building. I mean, one of the special things, other than being at home and being forced to listen to uh, classical music with your parents, that I think the Brill building writers had as an influence, they were also telling us things like, Yeah, we'd be writing all day. And then we'd go around the corner to the Copacabana and party and listen to all these Latin rhythms and get so excited and um, get so many ideas, just go straight back to the studio and add it into the song so that you would see these multitude of influences that come from people being together and sharing ideas. And that's something that I think we see when you look at what's, number one uh, on the pop charts or what can float. I mean, The weekend has been, the same album has been in the top of the charts for months and months. Well, he's got Swedish producers on that. And those are a group of people that know how to work together, are friends, and can actually elicit something that's more than just what appeals to the algorithm or what appeals to the masses. It's actually like, what is that magic thing that we can get from being in a room together and sharing ideas?
0: I was even thinking too, the auto-tune episode with Andy Hildebrand, right? I mean, we have all these people who have sway over popular music. I mean, Hildebrand was what, a digital engineer or something like that? And he was uh, doing seismic research and uh, ends up coming up with a technology that kind of defines the sound of, of pop music and of hip hop uh, into the 21st century. So yeah, it's these kind of, like I say, the unassuming lunch pail guys uh, behind the the starlets. Now, was there anything from this episode besides the sort of missing song, the You've Lost That Loving Feeling act, that was kind of left on the cutting room floor that, you know, you guys were really kind of trying to get into the episode and and, and might not have made the cut for one reason or another?
3: Um Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh there was uh there's a few things. One uh was uh in the interview with Stan Greenberg. There's a moment, um where he really breaks down. Um, and it's kind of one of those things when you're doing an interview and you end up like, you know, it can kind of be a bit of a land, like, you know, you're walking in landmines, especially around trauma. And so it's kind of this thing where I think I stepped on a landmine, but didn't quite know that I was doing it. Um, but anyways, it, it was, um, uh, I was sort of asking him more about his relationship with his mom and he sort of broke down and, um, and, uh, and sort of talked about um, some of the abuse he faced about her. And it was a, a really raw moment. Um, and, you know, in film, those are really uh, hard to navigate. And I think you have to really think through the ethics of that. Um, and what, what does it serve in the episode to show somebody um, sort of, uh, you know, revealing trauma like that? Um, so in the end, I think we cut it sort of just before he, he really kind of exposes himself emotionally, um, and, and, uh, and the abuse he faced, uh, and it was in the episode and out and Amanda and I had a lot of conversations about it and it was very powerful, but at the same time, it just felt like, um, it maybe wasn't in the best service to him or the episode and, and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And so that was a, it was a hard thing to decide whether or not to cut. I know there was some stuff with Beverly Lee that was really interesting where she talked about um, sort of race and um, sort of being a Black performer in that time and uh, some of the prejudice she faced. Again, if it to, didn't feel like um, if we couldn't get into it enough, it maybe wasn't just worth just kind of touching on and not sort of being able to do justice to, to speaking speaking about it in more depth, we didn't we didn't want it to be something we just sort of like passed, like passed over like, oh, yeah. And then this happened, you know, Uh, she faced like incredible prejudice. (laughs) Um, So so in the end, we decided to cut that. It was hard to cut, but uh, we sort of realized that, you know, it's again, it's its own sort of act or episode. And and if we couldn't do that justice, then it wasn't maybe worth worth, um, uh, you know, just flying over. And then, uh, and then um, I'm trying to think what else. Well, there's Chelsea, a moment
0: I'm... that. Sorry. I just wanted to ask because you mentioned Florence Greenberg, you mentioned, you know, this case of, of prejudice with Beverly Lee. And it kind of leads me to something that I was curious about, because, you know, we try to tell these stories where it's like, we're telling the story of the Brill Building, and there were all these geniuses, and it was this great kind of unsung, unheralded moment. But there's a lot of bad vibes out of there too like there's a lot of stories of artists being ripped off and you know uh predatory producers and you know all these sort of horrible things that we associate with the music industry or the entertainment industry I mean can you can you both kind of give me your thoughts on trying to walk that tightrope where you're trying to again tell this unsung story but you don't just want to put a gloss on it and say that like this was terrific I mean it it certainly had its issues and a lot of the people that we talk about, And a lot of people we don't talk about certainly had uh, big issues.
2: Yeah, I I can say something about the Florence Greenberg Act. I was really, when I learned about her story when we were doing research for this, I just was uh, stunned that I'd never heard of her. And there's really a few things here and there that she's been mentioned in, but barely. She was the first female owner of a record company, which you'd think is something we should celebrate. She won a Grammy for that, that... um, Her son accepted it after she had died. So she got recognition in her time as somebody who was a tough worker. But even then, I don't know how many people knew who she was then. Um, It was interesting. I think for a long time, Bette Midler owned the rights to her story and they were were going to be, uh, not a play, but like a movie about her life and Bette Midler was going to play her and then it was going to be a big thing. But I think it was rights issues and arguments because so many of the people that she worked with um, didn't like her. And so wouldn't release the rights to the songs to that project. And so it couldn't actually get made out of many reasons that it, it didn't get made. So when Chelsea was putting together how she wanted to tell the Florence story, we spoke to her son, Stan, and we spoke to Beverly Lee, who was in the Shirelles. They both had really fraught relationships with her, really admired her for what she did um, for the music industry and for the groups that she worked with. But, you know, she was a tough cookie. She had an affairs on her husband that everyone could see. Even Mike Stoller brought it up when we were talking to him, not about Florence, it just came up. She's like, it's like yeah, I, re- I remember her down at the Turf, which was a restaurant on the first floor of the Brill. Yeah, she'd be there with Luce Luther, her hot young boyfriend, who was also a producer, and just hitting him over the head with her purse where she kept all her money and she'd just be screaming and yelling at him in public. And it's like, she's a married gal from
1: <laughs> two kids from and a husband in Jersey. From Phasaic, New Jersey. New Jersey.
2: <laughs> from Fasaic, right? So she just um, came across as a very flawed character with um, a lot of power. She lost a lot. She made a lot of enemies um, and she hurt people, but she also gave people careers that they, I don't think otherwise would have had. And to have somebody, especially a woman of that era, we don't, we never have those flawed characters as females and we don't hear those stories. So I was really keen to lean into Florence being somebody maybe not very likable, not because I'm obsessed with unlikable characters. She was a real human being that affected people. But I think it's important to see people for who they are and the multi-dimensions that they bring. And so I felt honored that we could talk about Florence, warts and all, because, you know, she had these amazing record labels. They, all these songs have had multiple lives. Uh, We didn't get into it in the episode, but she put out Louie Louie after she heard the demo tape, which was so crappy. She didn't want it uh, cleaned up because she's like, Nobody will understand what these lyrics are. So people will have to buy the record. So I'm definitely putting this out. I mean, that's a brilliant businesswoman. Um, So, yeah, I love out of I love this whole episode. But the Florence story is really amazing. She was really amazing woman and super flawed, which we don't often get to do when we talk about women of that era. But also we don't really get to do in these kind of music documentaries unless it's, um, you know, a heavy metal group where people are known for being difficult, you don't get to go down to that level. So it was, it was a
3: real
0: pleasure. I, I can, think I add you-
3: what, can I add one more detail, which is that Florence's purse was um, translucent?
0: Oh, so, <laughs> so you she, could see the money.
3: You could see the money, which <laughs> I just feel like is, first of all, so baller.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and yeah. second of all, just like I think. That tells you who Florence Greenberg is.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that she carried uh, I,
3: her money in a clear purse.
0: <laughs> I also think, too, Generally, I mean, if you are doing a, a doc documentary about pop music, which is obviously going to tie into the music industry. If you, you know, avoid and step around unlikable characters, it's pretty slim pickings, uh, <laughs> especially on the industry side. Okay, so once again, we had series producer. Of this is Pop Amanda Burt and director extraordinaire. Chelsea McMullen joining us on the pod. Uh, Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your stories. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, John. This is Pop is a production by Banger Films. Amanda Burt is our series producer. Chelsea McMullen is the director of this episode. Andres Londo is the editor of the episode and John Semley is the writer. This is Pop. The podcast was produced by Melissa Vincent and Matt Charlton at Pigeon Row and engineered by Village Sound. Follow us on Instagram
1: to stay up to date with all things this is pop.